Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 30 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. I am your host, Matt, and joining me on the cast today is my one and only co-host, Dan. Ladies. There he is. So you will notice a distinct lack of femininity in this episode. We need a woman's touch, Dan. You'll have to fill in. I can talk higher pitched. Tiff couldn't be with us today. You know, busy lives, busy schedules. You know, if you listened to last week, I did the whole news by myself, which was a whole experience unto itself. But uh, we are going to trudge along, Dan and I, with our episode 30. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. And Tiff will be back soon. I know she's really why you come for the show. But just to remind you all, if you want to reach out to us and have a chat, you can always find us on Facebook. You can shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. We have a BGG Guild, number 2077, where we have some nice conversation going pretty regularly. You can find us on places like Twitter and Instagram and Google Plus and all that good stuff. We are out there in the world. Feel free to reach out. We're friendly people. Uh, So for today's show, we've got some cool stuff. We are going to try out something that uh, Dan came up with, and we'll explain a little bit more about it, but it is called 3 Up, 3 Down, a new segment of ours. And then we have two interviews lined up, two separate interviews, one with J. Alex Cavern and the other with Randy Hoyt. And both of those interviews are going to be in regards to World's Fair 1893, which is a game that just released on Kickstarter and has already funded. So congrats to both of them. And you guys can listen to those interviews to hear more about the excellent game. But before we get into any of that, we're going to start how we normally do by talking about a little bit of what we've been playing. So, Dan, you you got to go play all kinds of games in North Carolina, right? I did. I got to go down to Raleigh, North Carolina, last weekend to the convention. It's a local convention called That Board Gaming Thing. Not sure why it's called that, but that's what it's called. Uh, this is a small kind of invite-only, like I mentioned, local convention down there that I was fortunate enough to get invited to by our friend Matt Wolf. And I got to hang out with a lot of really cool people. So first off, thanks to everyone for being so hospitable and hanging out and playing some really cool games. I got taught a lot of new ones. And I have to say my favorite one that I played was probably The Name of the Rose. So this is my, as I called it on Twitter, my Feldian White Whale. This is the one Feld game that I have not been able to track down and get a play of. Um, I'm fairly new to the whole Feld craze within the last like year and a half or so, but this is an old, I think it's 2008 was when it was first published. And this is, it's got an IP attached to it. Obviously the name, the name of the Rose being the book and the movie made popular by Sean Connery and Christian Slater. Both are great. So a little hesitant. I've heard some mixed things about it because it's not really your typical Feld. When you think of Feld, I mean, for me, it first starts out with layer upon layer of decisioning and opportunities and just strategy galore and some tactics. And this game was a deduction game, which was kind of neat. So in it, each player takes on the role of one of six monks. So this plays up to six players or it might only be five. I don't know. Maybe the one is always left out. I'm not sure, but we had five players and we took on a roll of the monk. There's five, six different colored monks. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to come out of the game, 
the least guilty looking, which is kind of neat. So the board is laid out like the monastery in the movie with different locations within the monastery. So the library, the kitchen, all kinds of things. And then there's two tracks above uh, above and below the game board. Um, one is for clue points that's below. And this is kind of the permanent tracker that's going to kind of tally your quote victory points in this game. And then there's also the suspicion track, which is going to reset each round um, based on how everything goes. So what you're going to do is each player has a hand of three cards and on these cards, they ha they allow you to move to a specific location or move a certain colored monk or move one of the two monk investigators. So Connery and Slater. So William and I forget the little guy's name in the movie, but so you're going to play a card and you're going to do what it says. So you're going to move a monk over it. So what you're trying to do though, is you're trying to and this is, I, I, I likened it to a little bit of chaosmos, Matt, just for a frame of reference, is you're trying to come out as the least guilty monk at the end of the game. But by moving monks to these different locations, there's these tasks on each location. And if the monk color doesn't match a task at that location, he's going to take suspicion points because thematically it's like, why is this monk visiting this location if there's no task for him to complete? So he'll move up on the suspicion track and this will go on until the round ends. At the end of the round, you're going to look at the suspicion track and whoever's in first place on the suspicion track is going to add five clue points to the total at the bottom so forth and so on until we get to the last player so five four three two one different clue points and then at the end of the seven rounds whoever has the most clue points is the loser and whoever has the least is deemed to be the winner so you're trying to work out who the other monks are, who's moving who. It, it, there's a lot of little things going on, but it's it's really kind of neat. And like I said, it's just not your typical Feld. In I mean, there were parts of it that I could see him at work, but but otherwise it was it was I don't know. It was really neat. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Heimlich and Co. as well, the old Spiel des Jahres game where you're trying to move the different little investigators, but you're not trying to give away which one you are and still finish in first kind of thing. So really cool. I have been scouring the internet trying to find a copy of this thing because it's out of print. I've tracked down a few of them, but they're very expensive. And actually I'm looking at BGG right now. The one I was almost tempted to buy this morning is already gone. So I'm a little bit bummed. <laughs> so where does it stack up in the, the filled hierarchy? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it almost sits in its own little realm because it's just so atypical of what I've come to kind of expect from his plays. But I, I put it pretty high up there because I, I mean, I only had one play of it and who knows if it, you know, it loses some of its luster outside of a convention or outside of, you know, max player account, but I, I really enjoyed it. I'd, I'd probably put it top, probably top five or six for me. So number two, right under Aquasphere. I got you. That makes sense. No, Aquasphere is below this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the concern that I was wondering about would, would be player count since it is a deduction game. Like, do you think that it would work with less than five? I think it will. And it, it's Matt Wolf's game. Matt Wolf, the designer of Wombat Rescue and Avalanche at Eddie Mountain, who we talk to all the time. He's played it with, I think, two and three. And he said it works actually kind of well. All the monks are available to be moved on the board and you still have to kind of determine uh, who who. So you dug it enough to go find it. I'm looking for it. I'm really bummed about the other one because it was a it was a new and shrink multilingual edition. And well, it's if gone. anybody has a copy, you know where to go. I'll buy it. BGG Guild number two zero seven seven. Well, I'll jump in here with a game from one of our other designer friends since we just you know we're in the know sometimes. Uh, I finally got to play Morocco. 
And just so you know, this is one that I mentioned in last week's news episode, just to look out for. This will be coming out soon on Kickstarter, and we will have a preview up on nonsensicalgamers.com, so be sure to check it out. But basically, Morocco is, should we say area control? Is that fair? I think that's fair. So it's essentially an area control game where you are placing workers, and there are different variety of workers or ways to place them. Uh, You're placing them in these market stalls in the center of a board, and each market stall has four available spots for a worker. And when the entire market stall fills up, the person with majority gets to claim that for certain benefits. To claim a market stall, to place a worker there, you interact with this. It's a rondelle, but it doesn't rotate. You know, it's a rondelle form, but you move it around in kind of whichever way. It's it's a freely moving rondelle. Really clever kind of resource mechanic where you place it on one spot and you gain the resources from the two spots next to it. And your opponents gain the resource of the spot you place it on. So you're giving your opponent something and you're gaining something, uh, gaining two things, actually. And in this really kind of simplistic way, you are gaining resources and placing workers every round and essentially trying to set up interesting plays where you're chaining together the scoring of these stalls. And I enjoyed the game. I, I spoke briefly with Matt Riddle on Twitter, one of the designers, and he was asking me, you know, what I thought after the first game. I said, first off, the theme is kind of forgettable. Uh, It is classic muted colors dude, like Moroccan dude on the box cover kind of thing. It looks very kind of boring. But as we all know, if we enjoy Euro games, that the box is not really what sells you on Euro games. It's the mechanics. And that's where this game really thrives. Like I think there's a lot of nice, clever innovation in the game where you described it, Dan, as like a very classic feeling game. And I agree with that. It's got a really kind of old school feel. It's very simplistic, but it's thoughtful. And all the decisions that you make are very deliberate. And I kind of appreciate that in this really short, like 45 minute game. I'm looking forward to playing it some more. Yeah. I was joking with him after we played it the first time, because like you said, the theme is loose. And I think it was originally, (laughs) I think it was originally something to do with gardening or plants or flowers. Planting seeds and flowers. And I thought that that was far more creative, but the, the, gaming market is stuck in a rut i love quirky things and we'll talk about that in the next segment but it's it's funny i thought they should change the name and i told him this on twitter i was like just call it juice because like the whole time you're playing all you want to say is juice it's true you do you collect these juice tokens for whatever reason you know because floating markets and fruit and juice are kind of their thing but uh (laughs) you collect these juice tokens and yeah i mean it would definitely turn some heads like oh you you play that that juice game? <laughs> exactly. You got some juice. No, I really like the game. I think it's cool. Like you said, it's it's simplistic, but it's got enough thoughtful decision making within it that it. I find it interesting. I, I, it's a little, and I'll talk about this in my review, a little slow to ramp up, but I think it's it's deliberate in that way because it really sets up some neat comboing as the game goes on and the mid to late game is really kind of exciting and interesting kind of the balance between do i go here do i go there oh i can only go here i can only go there kudos to them i know this is one of their in talking to them it's one of their favorite designs that they've done and um you you can tell they did they put a little love into this one yeah, I mean, it's very thoughtful and definitely want to check out. That'll be going up October 5th. Yeah, next Monday when we're recording this, so yeah, October 5th. Cool. 
So check it out then, and we'll be sure to talk about it. Who knows? Matt and Ben may pop up. You never know where they're where they're going to show up on the show. But uh, let's go ahead and chat about another game. So this is a game that I don't even know if I can pronounce. Stan, what what is Egizia? Egizia. So this is a game that I've been wanting to play for a really long time. One of our buddies that's on the guild, Dan Licata, he always talks up this game as probably his favorite game, and I've. I've never had a chance to sit down and play it. It's out of print, so it's really hard to get unless you're willing to spend like 90 to to $100 to get it, which I'm really not at the moment, but I've been searching for it in trades because I, I did enjoy it. It's, it's kind of cool the way it works. So players are, I don't know what you are, architects or something in ancient Egypt, and you're trying to help the pharaoh build these different buildings. So an obelisks, uh, uh, a temple, the pyramid, etc. But the way you're going to collect resources is a really neat little mechanic. And I would liken it to something like Francis Drake for those who have played Francis Drake. So in the middle of the board is the Nile. And on either bank of the Nile going down in alternating uh, style are different action spaces. And these action spaces are replenished in each of the five rounds with different cards. These cards have um, worker upgrades, resources, all kinds of different things, but you've got a little supply of boats. And what you're going to do on your turn is you're going to, in the first phase, you're going to take one of your boats when it's your turn and you're going to place it on one of the spots on the river and you'll collect whatever the reward on the action space is. The twist is that once you start down river, you can never reverse course. So if I place a boat on space five, I can't go back to space four the next turn to get that action. You've got to weigh, you know, the cost benefit of jumping too far ahead because you're skipping over a lot of things and it may, might make more sense to methodically move down the river. Also to keep in mind, another part of that twist is that only one person is allowed per action space. So, you know, it, there's a lot of things to weigh in, in, in your thought tree there. But, um, yeah, you keep going down the river until there's no more spaces for anyone to play on. And then you trigger the second phase of the game, which is this building phase where if you put your boats on one of like three docks on the river, they allow you to go into these three areas and help with the building or grab these cards that are like bonuses at the end of the game. So really kind of neat. Um, it was, I don't want to say it was overwhelming at first, but there was definitely some first play issues that I experienced in that, in, in my own play, just having not played it. One being those bonus cards and anyone who's played the game will know those bonus cards are huge. And I didn't really get into those as much until later in the game and realized how big those points were because they have like different goals on them. Like the pyramid has reached, you know, level four, the obelisk has reached level nine, things like that. And all of these different monuments, et cetera, are being built cooperatively. You're going to get points for doing your individual building section, but you know, they contribute towards these bonus cards all the same. So yeah, you could like kind of draw into a bonus card that, Oh, the obelisk. Cool. I'll take that. And then you get like nine points. So I was keeping up until the end of the game. And then I just got trounced by the people that had played before and knew the value of these cards. So I definitely like to play it again and I'm definitely on the look for it. It sounds cool. It's cool. And I like the theme. I like the balance of, I mean, it's got not to simplify, but you know, it sounds like it's got some of that like Glenmore to kaido where like you can jump as far as you want, but you're risking, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's risk management in terms of how much am I willing to give up for this space or this opportunity, you know? So I, I like that idea because those games are always super engaging. You're always trying to maximize without giving up too much, you know? Yep. Yeah. 
Very cool. Well, I'm going to talk about one more and, and before we move right along into our next segment and uh, deviating a little bit from the board game world, but not quite. Last episode, episode 29, I talked a little bit about Armello and how I was playing this digital board game. Well, I stumbled across another digital board game. I have been playing Blood Bowl 2 on my PS4, which is basically a digital version of Blood Bowl the game which is a Games Workshop property that is currently out of print, out of production. Um, They don't produce it anymore, but it is basically fantasy football in the literal sense. It's dwarves and elves and goblins and all kinds of fantasy creatures beating each other up on a football field um, with emphasis on spilling blood and kind of bashing in your opponent's heads. And, you know, I picked this up because I like uh, games like Dreadball and Blood Bowl in concept. I really like sports games and I like aggressive sports games, like the idea of just like beating someone up and taking the ball and going and scoring. And this was a way to get my fix for that kind of game without having to find a player because those games don't always appeal to the people in our group. So it's kind of hard to get them to the table. But uh, I can play against the AI, I can play online, and it's a really clean implementation of the Blood Bowl system. You know, there is the virtual dice rolling, all the movement mechanics and the rules are the same. You actually just read the Blood Bowl rule book and you know how to play the video game kind of thing. So I'm really enjoying it. It's tactical and turn-based and I get to do the character progression and like play a season and stuff like that so I really dig it I know some people have some complaints about previous versions of it and and this version but it seems to be working for me and I'm having a great time with it so that's one of the things that I've been playing and I don't know if that interests you at all Dan you're not really a sports game kind of guy right I mean I like Blood Bowl especially like team manager card game but yeah. I mean, when it comes down to playing a video game, I'll just pull up Madden, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that makes sense. And I even thought about that. But, you know, it's it's a nice alternative. And if anybody's interested in Blood Bowl, you know, I think that this is a good way to do it without having to spring for like third party miniatures and buying boards and stuff, because it's actually expensive to get into that game. This is a nice alternative if you're interested in that kind of stuff. So I dig it. Definitely something to check out. All right. So we are going to go ahead and take a break um, and transition into our next segment. Before we do that, if you're interested in hearing more about what we've been playing, we've actually been featuring a weekly blog about what we've been playing over the week and over the weekend. So if you're interested in what Dan and I have been playing on top of these games, if you're interested in what the other league members have been playing, be sure to head over to nonsensicalgamers.com to check out our blog on what we played last week. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do our three up, three down. We'll see you then. All right, everyone, we are back, and it's time to try out a new segment. This is called Three Up, Three Down, and this is Dan's creation, and it's a great idea. So I'm going to let him give you a little preview about it and then take us right into the talk. So this just was an idea I had because I am a huge fan of baseball, and it's my favorite sport. And obviously, Three Up, Three Down is an expression in baseball three batters up three batters out so i just thought about um you know how could we apply it to board games and it doesn't really make sense but we're gonna try it (laughs) we're gonna just go through and we're gonna give three things in the industry we think are on the up so this these could be themes or designers or mechanics or specific games it's really whatever we want so 
whatever three things we think are going up. And then on the opposite side, what three things are down? So in our opinion, so for me, you know, it could be a specific game. It could be, I don't know, Ameritrash games or it could be anything, but forever down for days. Yes, forever down. These are just, they don't even, yeah. Can't get lower. No. Than Ameritrash games. No, not really. But that's kind of the gist of it. So Matt and I will go through and we'll just list some ups and some downs and we'll see, you know, we'll talk about each, see what comes up. All right. So go ahead and give me what's uh, what's up in your world, Dan. So I kind of alluded to this earlier when we were talking about Matt and Ben's game Morocco and how it had that cool little uh, gardening, flowering, seeding game <laughs> theme to it. So one thing for me that's really kind of on the up in my collection as well as in my preferences is quirky themes. I'm really enjoying seeing designers explore themes outside of wizards and space and vampires and zombies, freaking zombies. Anyways, you know, things like, you know, one of my favorite games of all time is Rococo. And then you've got other games like, uh, you know, one I've recently playing that is probably not on anyone's radio it's called corto which is based off of an old um graphic novel and all kinds of things you know matt riddle we talked or not matt riddle matt wolf we talked about for wombat rescue like pooping cubes like these are really kind of unique <laughs> and engaging themes that are just kind of out of the box and show and, and what i find with that out of the box thinking in the theme comes some more out of the box thinking as far as the design and the mechanics. I think those themes really lend themselves to kind of the integration within the game. And it's, I, I really like that. And I'm, I'm glad to see that we're getting more and more people exploring different themes and more and more publishers kind of taking a step back and saying, you know what? I think there is a market for these games. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that creativity in the board game space is so welcome and wide open and it's so easy to kind of play with and cool games like daniel solace's game where you build that tree oh yeah kiki cool. that was neat kiki and uh i mean there's just so much fun stuff to play with and i agree you know i think that creativity in theme tends to spur creativity in design or whichever way that relationship goes you know it's it's makes for more engaging experiences you know um and you don't have to work as hard to like like a game exactly when it's just kind of quirky you know yeah. And I mean, another upcoming one that's, I mean, probably completely out of my wheelhouse, but who knows? It, Scythe. I mean, the new uh, Stonemaier games. Yeah. I mean, the art and the theme is just totally, I mean, mechs in a farming country. Like that's, that's so cool. And I think, it, I mean, people have really kind of jumped on that and accepted that. And, um, you know, Jamie, if you're listening, kudos, man, I'm really excited to see some new different theme integration it's it's just cool yeah. well and even to speak slightly to this episode you know a game like world's fair 1893 it's not a a quirky theme per se but it's an underused theme and it's even a game like that where it's it's breaking the boundaries a little bit i appreciate you know it's something fresh new americana you know it's something that I, that i like that's not super weird but even it's just getting away from the basic tropes of gaming so enough of that though i want to talk about me a little bit and something that you'll probably be excited to hear, Dan, something that is up for me out of necessity is medium and heavy games. I My whole three up and three down is going to be about how I'm stuck in a gaming rut. And because of that, I'm, I'm kind of tired of playing light games at the moment. Thank you. I We've been playing... Now, I've always liked medium heavy games, but I'm such a, a people pleaser that basically... 
anytime we get together to play games, I'm looking for the least common denominator. And that ends up, we're playing games, not to elude too much, but games like Codenames, games like Spyfall, um, lighter games like Liftoff and some of the review games we've been doing have been lighter. Um, and I just, I am, I'm f- all for playing something heavier. Let's break out Terra Mystica. Let's break out. Um, Exercise your mind, Matthew. <laughs> I just listened to Heavy Cardboard talk about Arjun. I want to play some more Arjun. I've got Madeira sitting on my shelf. You know, we've got some good games that are fun and engaging, and I I like the challenge that those games pose. And we just need to sit down and play and put them on the table. You know, I so often we sit around and I'm just like I grab whatever's light because I know that we'll all just accept it. But I'm gonna like I'm gonna throw something that's got some weight on the table and just say, play it with me or go away. <laughs> I will usually play those games with you. I'm a big fan of medium heavyweight. And I you know I understand what you're saying about kind of facilitating game night and incorporating as many players as possible. And that- but it, and it it kind of sucks because I'm not opposed to playing games with you and but I'm like I got seven people here and if I can appease six of them, yeah. do I do that or do I put four people out and go play something? No, it's not easy. It's tough to balance the dynamic. But but they are up. I want them. I want to play them. We've got some good ones. You've got all kinds of new ones, so we need to do that. But anyway, kick it back to you. Give me an up or a down. All right, let's let's balance out the ups with the downs. Um, my next one is a downer, and this is cool mini or not. I don't know if I have really any basis in this being a down for me, other than I'm just so sick of them on Kickstarter. <laughs> and they're just... I don't get it. I don't understand the craze. Yes, the plastic is beautiful, but how many freaking games with plastic do you need? Because the games are not good. Like they're just, and this is my opinion. I just don't see the appeal of these games. And it's just, you know, going back to our discussion on hype, it's just all this hype and they put this bow on it and people just throw money at them. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just really, it, it, and another reason is I don't think they need to be on Kickstarter. Like that company has raised millions. Get get off a of Kickstarter. Yeah. Like Kickstarter is becoming its own issue for me in itself. But like these big companies that are making these hundreds and thousands of dollars don't they don't need the Kickstarter. Like they really don't. And it's just I don't know. It's just one of those things. Yeah. I I won't say that cool mini or not games are bad per se, because that's probably too strong for me because I like them and I play them. But I don't think there's enough variability in their games. That's fair. To where it's like, do I need a third zombie side? Do I need the others, which looks a lot like zombie side? I haven't even gotten my previous giant box of minis. Do I need to buy another box of minis? That's the thing. Like they're just constantly overlapping projects with delivery and like they're just never, I don't know. And the ones I've seen, they're, they're nice. The production quality is great. They, they are really well produced games. I don't find the games to be intriguing, as I said, right, you know, at the beginning, but I just don't, uh, it's just, I'm so, sick of seeing them on quick kickstarter and well that couples with my first negative which is backing games i'm kind of over kickstarter and it it's unfortunate because there are some good games still coming out but i am sitting here with a checklist of games that i'm waiting to be delivered and i'm excited for them but i'm not excited for them as much as i was before and i 
I hit my Kickstarter stride late to the point where a lot of people had, you know, 10, 20 games backed at the same time like a year ago. Well, I hit that this year and I'm starting to realize what everyone is mad about when it comes to Kickstarter. I'm over it. I'm going to support games that I feel are unique and that won't get made otherwise. But I, I'm done just pre-ordering games on Kickstarter and then watching them come out at Gen Con before I get my copy or watching them come out at Essen before I get my copy. I'm, I'm kind of over it and I'm over buying into the Kickstarter hype and then getting a game that it turns out I'm not that interested Ugh. in. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I completely agree. I was just looking through my undelivered projects yesterday and I was just like, oh, that game. No, I probably won't even play that. And <laughs> I actually yeah. just re- recently received a Kickstarter game and I put it right on the BGG marketplace because I was like, I don't even have time for that. I've got so many other games I'd rather play now. We're just going to put that on the marketplace. So, all right, let's all right. get this party back to something positive. Give me some happiness. So I'm going to say, I'm going to go with a designer for this one. And this is two designers, um, Kramer and Kiesling. Yeah, they've been up for years. I mean, they've won multiple Spiel des Jahres, et cetera, but I'm just kind of i don't want to say i'm getting into their games because i've played a number of their games but i've really been on a a kick with them um at origins i obtained sansuchi and i think this is what kind of drove it i just loved sansuchi as we talked about in our origins recap and the simplicity of it but the cool little you know building of the garden etc and that's since then that's led me to buy um coal baron i've bought are traded for Vikings. Um, I've also attempted to trade and hopefully fingers crossed by the time this airs, uh, palaces of Carrera. I'm just on this kick of their games and I've pre-ordered Porta Nigra, their new one from stronghold. I just really appreciate their design and the, I just, it's such a good experience for me. I really enjoy playing their games. A Bluxen. I mean, a Bluxen's yeah. amazing. And again, some of these are not diversity. both of them. You know, some are Michael Kiesling solo, some are Kramer with someone else, et cetera. But those two guys together, like I've just been on this kick with them and I'm really, I'm really impressed with their games. It's just, I mean, I, I'm probably a little bit behind the eight ball and expressing my love for them, but I, I just needed to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, noted. They they definitely have good diversity. They've got good, solid designs. Whether or not everyone's a hit, you know, I think that it's definitely a name you can trust and is always worth giving a try. Another name that you can trust is Star Wars, because everything Star Wars is awesome. I What's on the up and up for me is Star Wars in general, but then I'm going to talk about Star Wars Armada. So I totally bought into the hype of Force Friday, got my pop figures, Got some Star Wars gear. I'm excited for the new movie. I told Kelly B that we can't get married officially until she's watched all three originals because she never had. So we watched all three of them. Yeah, that's grounds for and divorce. Now it, right? It, yeah. It's the it's my prenup. She had to watch all three of them. And wave two of Star Wars Armada is coming out. And I've been looking at the spoilers and the previews. Um, this coming weekend is the Massing at Sullis, which is basically the wave two preview event where we're going to get to see the Imperial class Star Destroyer, which is awesome. Uh, I am just feeling Star Wars and specifically Armada because I think it's an awesome game. Um, I There was like a moment where I was on such a Star Wars high that I almost got back into X-Wing to Smee's delight. Uh, but I'm still, I held off on that one. But I just, I really want to dig into the game more. I love it. I, I play it with Cress primarily. You know, he's my Armada buddy. But it's such a good game. And Star Wars is such a fantastic IP. I really do enjoy it. It's such a great world. Um, so I'm just riding a Star Wars high these days. And I'm I'm perfectly fine with it. Yeah. I want Star Wars Carcass Home. That one looks cool. 
I was thinking about Star Wars Risk. Everyone is talking about Star Wars Star, Risk. The new one is supposed to be yeah. similar to like Queen's Gambit in a way. That's what I'm hearing. I almost picked it up, but then I heard it's probably just best to wait for the new Black Edition that's coming out if you really are a Star Wars fan. But it's like 50 bucks. But it's apparently got more little minis and stuff in it. Yeah, they've got like pewter figures and stuff, but I can get the basic one for like 20 bucks off Amazon. Yeah, I mean... I'm interested. But anyway, why spend all this time being happy when we've got two more sad things to talk about? What's down for you, Dan? We all know. <sighs> party games. Always. I'm sick of party games. And specifically, Codenames and Spyfall. Now, why are you down on Codenames? Now, let me, let, me, let me preface this by saying Codenames is an amazing game. It's one of those games where you sit down and you play it and you leave going, why the hell didn't I think of that? Like, it's just so simple, so streamlined, just so ingenious. I'm going to say that it's it's a brilliant design. It might be my favorite Vlada Shavato game, to be honest with you. It's it's just that good. But I am just tired of playing it right now. It's just one of those things. It's like everywhere you go and and this may be because i got my copy at gen con before the kind of the wide release so i kind of played it out at gen con for hours now we sat down the first day i got it and we played it for i'm not even joking five hours that's not even an exaggeration five hours of just a lot of hours rotating teams rotating you know clue givers etc and it was fun and it was a lot of you know i got my 20 bucks worth right there and then that day yeah but I'm just everywhere I go. And I was at that convention last week in North Carolina and it was on like every other table. And I'm just, I, I just, ooh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've seen every word in the game at least twice. That's how many times yeah. it's been played. But it's, it really is such a good game. Uh, I brought it out with my non-gaming friends when I went down to visit for a dinner and you know, I, I played it and and at that point, I realized it's like, all right, I've played this way too much <laughs> in the last yeah. like month and a half. It's just one of those things. I've probably played it like 20 sometimes, and that's not even exaggerating. But it's a good game. I'm just really kind of, as you mentioned before, the lighter games. I'm kind of just, I'm over them at the moment. I want to get my brain into something deep. Yeah, it, it's such a good family offering, and it holds so many players. It's it's so hard when you're sitting there with all of your with the diversity of gamers and you're like what game fits everyone code names fits everyone except for the people who are tired of code names <laughs> so yeah but it is a it's a great game i can't praise it enough well my down for right now between work starting up and work has been a bear and we've been doing a lot of good work with the site check out nonsensicalgamers.com we're working hard for you guys to bring you content But this is part of my gaming rut. I just don't feel like I've been playing enough games that I want to play. So one of my downs right now is reviewing games. I don't dislike reviewing games. I love reviewing games. It's why we do what we do, of course. But I'm I'm feeling some of the burnout, you know, between real life and keeping a, a busy schedule with the site. Reviewing games is getting tough. And I I feel like at times I review games because I love them and lately I've been reviewing games because I have to and that's not a spot that I want in so I need to take a breather I need to play some games I want to play I need to find and kind of revitalize my love for for reviewing but it's just I don't want it to become too much like work it is hard work but I don't want it to be like an unpaid job completely agree I've kind of I had that feeling actually right after Gen Con and usually I'm kind of invigorated by Gen Con but it's just it's so overwhelming, the growth in the hobby and trying to keep up with everything and everyone. And then on top of it, 
you know, playing these games that most of the time, and you know, most of the time we are getting games that we want because we have a good vetting process between the eight of us. And we, we only usually accept games that at least sound interesting on paper, or we've read the rule book to some degree and have been interesting. So I don't want to say that we've played like a ton of crappy games, but you know, it does start to feel like work and we do not make anything off this. And it's just so frustrating when you see, like, it's not even when you see it, but we don't even get, like, you don't get much in this kind of board game media. You don't get a lot of feedback and you don't get a lot of people saying, Hey, you know, you know, I really enjoyed your review. Like those are the things that drive us. Not, you know, we don't make money. High fives, everybody. But no, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, reviewing games has been, and we, I think we're getting ourselves back on track. We had a huge backlog and once we get this out of the way, we'll definitely be back on track, I think. So still love it, but it's, it's part of that whole overwhelming nature of, of the hobby at times when you're trying to be, when you're trying to keep up with the times, but you know what? Forget it. Let's talk about positives. We're all happy here. No, no, no. Deduction let's games. do, let's do our last down and we'll end on a high. Okay, I didn't mean to spoil. All right, what's bad for you? All right, so my last thing is the auction mechanic. (laughs) I'm really getting tired of games with auction mechanics. And I've probably said this since like episode two when I talked about New Amsterdam. Love you, Todd. You've been down on auctions since New Amsterdam? No, I've just been down on auctions recently. And I've been trying to like sit down. And I think this might be a discussion for another day. Maybe we'll go through like mechanics we love and hate and why. But I, I... at times I have trouble putting a finger on why I don't like it. And I've come up with a couple things and I know this isn't my full fleshed out thought process, but you know, first off, you know, auctions reward repeated replays, right? And Mm -hmm. as everyone knows that listens to the show, I'm kind of called to the new and I don't dive into games myself as well as my play groups don't dive into games multiple, multiple, multiple times to really kind of bring that level playing field because with with auction games you know not only the the reward repeated plays but they're very highly group dependent in my opinion yeah yeah there's they definitely can bring about problems with players um depending on their the differing skill levels at the table or the experience levels with the game itself because you know a lot of times you roll into a game and i played like for instance princes of florence i played recently great game but the auction just just bugs me because i roll into it and i go uh yeah i'll bid 200 because why not that sounds good like it's just one of those things and that at the same time kind of makes it a little more inaccessible to players i mean we played warehouse 51 a couple weeks ago with our brother eric and he just had a miserable time with it because he just didn't know when to bid what was good like and and well, and he hoarded all of his money because he's. But cheap, that's the thing. But, like, you don't know is that the right way to go? I don't know. It's just, yeah, and you yeah. know, again, I've said it's group dependent. You know, the players, especially like the new ones, could over or underbid from different perspectives on the table, and that could just throw the game off in all kinds of different directions. I, I just, I don't know why. I do agree that there are games that there are problems with group members. That one, the fun of the game depends on the group. And on a completely separate note, the ability to to function in the game, like to play it appropriately, matters with the group because unexperienced players will ruin an experienced player's game by bidding incorrectly. And I know that that sounds silly, but it's it's kind of like when you play poker with someone who doesn't know how to play poker and you're like, why the hell are you betting that way? Um, just it 
it does matter the to have a consistent experience level. But games that like when you play a good auction game, it can feel really good, especially when when all those elements kind of line up. I think the problem is, is that it's a tough thing to do, especially when you're called to the new and especially when you have so many moving kind of game players as we do, so many members that it's hard to get the perfect storm of for an auction game kind of thing. Yeah. So one out of every auction plays is actually fun, enjoyable, tense and the rest of them somebody screws it up i don't know maybe that was i i think i spoke i I, I need to i need to process my thoughts on this because i've been thinking about it a lot why i don't really care for the mechanic in games so i'll come back to that let's table that i'll come back to that with a more cohesive thought process well i'll talk about my last down and then we'll rejoice in our um our ups and my my downs are backing games reviewing games and now buying games i am really i'm in a gaming rut man i need some good times with games um there is nothing to buy right now it is the most boring time in board games between gen con and spiel when gen con was full of kickstarter previews and a bunch of junk and like i'm excited that minuscule came out like that's what i'm excited about i'm excited that i like nothing is out I'm excited that Why First came out. These are like tiny little games. There's nothing substantial that's yeah. hit the market that I that I'm like, oh wow, I can't wait to try that. I I hope someone buys that. I hope I get to buy that. And I'm looking through lists of like what came out last year that I missed, so I can go buy those games instead. And I know I don't have to buy games, but it's such a lull right now in the market, and I'm bored. Yeah, there's there seems to be the floodgates have opened on mediocrity river and it's just flooding everywhere. We sound like curmudgeons, but I just, you know, there's there's times during the year when there are legitimate bright spots and there's and it's like, wow, there's so many games to try. I can't wait to get all these. I can't wait to to see what my friends pick up and try what they buy. And these days, I mean, I like playing games more than once, so I'm looking at my my shelf and looking at the backlog and like, well, there's nothing new to play, so let's play some of these old games. So it's good for that. But it's nice to have, you know, a fresh, you know, a fresh shrink wrap package every now and then. And I know you've been doing a lot of trading, but I don't think you've been grabbing anything new, have you? Like newer releases? No, I've been trying to kind of actually, I've been kind of getting rid of the newer releases, the ones that I just, I bought into the hype and I just wasn't pleased with it. As you know, not to the yeah. degree that it was bad, but to the degree that I don't really want to play it anymore. It doesn't need to be in my collection. So I'm kind of taking that hype and turning it around and trying to collect some of these older games that are kind of quote classics in a way, like Vikings I just obtained. And I've got a couple other ones like yeah. Rolling Freight and, you know, some, some older, not old, you know, older is in the last like five years kind of thing, but I'm trying to spin the hype in the opposite way to my advantage to kind of fill my collection with some games that I know will kind of solidify it and stay around for a while. If you go to cool stuff like I just did, you've got the reprint of Samurai came out. The reprint of I'm actually Samurai. really interested in the out. Samurai one. I, I think I might pick that one up. I mean, it's cool, but it's an old game. Like, it's not... Yeah. The old games are... You know, oldies are goodies. Smash Up Munchkin came out, Dan. Do you want to go buy Smash Up Munchkin? I, I can't say the word I want to say right now. <laughs> Not appropriate for the... Nope. Keeping it G. Fair All right. Enough. Let's go out on a high. Let's go on a high. Yep. So... All right. Give it to me. One thing I'm really loving right now, opposite of party games, I'm loving deduction games. I really am. And these are probably the one genre game where the lighter 
elements don't bother me as much because I really love just racking my brain trying to deduce something. I love logic puzzles. That was something I grew up loving. You know, I'm a big math nerd, etc. And I'm just really digging deduction games right now. As I talked before, The Name of the Rose, I really enjoyed. I can't even think of another one off the top of my head. That's how alchemist alchemist i really like um you really want to play clue i don't not clue no. i love clue and no. that's so nostalgic <laughs> it's probably you play mystery at the abbey yeah mystery of the abbey those kind of games i really just like deducing things i just love that logic puzzle that plays out and the kind of uh gamesmanship that goes on between the players i really i really like that so yeah deduction games they're awesome and i'd even put memory games in there because i've been loving kabuki and open sesame because they're a good time. Yeah, they're good. Yay, games. Yay, games. There are good things to say about games. Uh, in particular, my last up is Essen. Essen 15, 2015 is, is about to happen. And I just did, you guys can check out on Friday, our list of most anticipated Essen games on nonsensicalgamers.com. And I just did my list and filled my 10 before page 9. I'm excited about some games. Now, they're all not going to be winners. I recognize that. But there's all kinds of fun and interesting stuff. And hopefully, a lot of them come to the U.S. or are made available for me to purchase from overseas. Um, there are some cool things. Of course, the Abyss expansion is coming out. So why wouldn't I be excited for Essen? But I also saw a lot of other things. Um, Antarctica and uh, Aya and... There's all kinds of like abstract strategy games and the game from NSKN, which is about dragon riding and worker placement. Like that sounds cool. There's just a lot of cool stuff for us. And, and I'm hoping that some of those new games, you know, will get me excited for the news, will get me excited for new releases and that there'll be some fresh, you know, maybe some medium heavy games that we can dig into. I'm um, just hoping that Essen is a is a nice time to revitalize and kind of get back into the gaming. I know there's a ton and, you know, a little teaser. We'll be going next week. We'll be going through our Essen preview show. So we'll go through all the games that we're excited about. Um, this won't be a Rado 184 hour podcast. Did that yeah, happen? He went through 170 games over four and a half hours on his latest podcast. It is a like 250 wow. megabyte file. I, I've i only gotten like In 10 minutes. Rado fashion, yeah. Fill up your eyes. It's just a mix of his verbosity with the excitement of all the games coming. So there are definitely a ton of games and I look forward to talking about them next week because this, this time of year is fun because I love the European market. I think it'll be cool. Bam. Cool. We did it. Three up, three down. Be sure to let us know what you guys thought on the BGG Guild number 2077. Add your three up, three down, right? We want to hear what you guys have to say because I'm sure you guys aren't stuck in a gaming rut like me and maybe you like party games. I'm like, Dan. So there's probably more exciting things to talk about. But for now, also just let us know your thoughts on the segment. If there's something we could change, if there's something that we can add to it. Uh, Hopefully Tiff will get her chance to do a three up, three down with us next time. And for now, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, Dan is going to sit down with J. Alex Cavern and Randy Hoyt and chat about World's Fair 1893. So stay tuned for that. All right, so we're back, and uh, as promised, we're joined by J. Alex Kevern, designer of World's Fair 1893, Gold West. What else do you got? You've got uh, Easy Breezy Travel Agency and uh, da- Dazu? Dasu? 
Yeah, so yeah, it's one uh, just came out with White Goblin Games. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I have it on a, uh, I have it in my next foreign order, so I'm looking forward <laughs> cool. to getting it. So uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being here. We're we're gonna talk some World's Fair because that's all the rage lately. When this recording airs, it'll be on Kickstarter. Probably only like one or two days, but it'll probably already be funded because it's that good of a game. <laughs> I hope so. But we'll get into that in a minute. So for those not familiar uh alex if you could just kind of give us a little background how you got into game design what you like to do for fun like do you like long walks on the beach rainbows you know puppies whatever man (laughs) i do love puppies of those three i would choose puppies okay (laughs) Uh, i'm a huge dog lover but so i got in game game design a few years ago uh easy breezy was my first game released world tour is actually my fourth game that will be coming out but it turns out even though the the signings were staggered a lot of uh, essentially, I have three games coming out this fall with Daxu, Gold Blast, and World's Fair. But I signed those at pretty different times. It turns out that uh, you know these things can take uh, a long time. Sometimes they take less amount of time. But yeah, so I got into game design uh, a few years ago. I really enjoyed playing games and, and almost enjoyed thinking about the games as much as I enjoyed playing the games. Uh, so that's what really got me interested in how games are designed and thinking about you know, how could, how do these get actually put together and what's the process like? So, you know, struggled through some, some initial prototypes where, you know, like anything, there's a learning curve. And then uh, finally got to a point where I felt comfortable enough, you know, pitching to publishers. And then Daxu was actually my first game signed. And then shortly after Easy Breezy, followed by Gold West. And then, uh, you know, a little after Gen Con of 2014 last year, uh, signed what would become World's Fair. And then as we know, you know, on the September 29th, that'll be hitting Kickstarter. And that'll be my first experience with a solo Kickstarter. Um, Goldust and Daxu weren't uh, crowdfunded at all. And Easy Breezy was part of the, you know, six game rabbit line. So this is really my first experience with, you know, it's sort of a judgment only on me <laughs> in, in terms of Kickstarter. So I, I'm really excited for it to come out. So the, the spotlight's on you. Right. Now, do you... From games design standpoint, they do you come from the typical and I think you have from I think I've I've listened before um to some other podcasts. You you have a sociology background? Yeah, so I have, a, I have a PhD in sociology. Oh cool. Uh also a bachelor's and master's. But yeah, so so it's, it's not your typical engineer. <laughs> yeah, there's some overlap. Um I, I I did a lot of data analysis and sort of quantitative analysis and my PhD and also in my, in my work now. So that certainly comes in handy. Sure. But it's more of, of you know, I'm just a nerd like everybody else that really <laughs> enjoys, uh, you know, games and thinking about games and designing games. And, and that's really the biggest overlap is just being able to, you know, care a lot about something and being able to develop it and research it and do all of those things. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just, it's like scratching a niche for me. It's like something that, uh, that I love to do it and feel like, you know, it makes me feel whole when I design games. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I know exactly what you're saying, because I like when I finish playing a game, almost as much as I enjoy playing the game, I enjoy kind of the, the after discussion, kind of yeah. what we liked, what we didn't like, what we thought was really neat, what worked, what didn't work usually. Yeah, yeah. So I completely understand where you're coming from. So with with World's Fair and you touched on it, you said what would become World's Fair. So obviously we're we're going to talk about this a little bit. But what was was this the original theme uh, for the game? Yeah, so it, it actually started off with a really um, called sort of a generic Euro game theme. It was about 
trading amber in the Baltics in the sort of northern Europe. Sort of this generic idea where instead of having, you know, the exhibits of the World's Fair, you had, you know, goods you were trying to deliver. And instead of uh, the midway attractions that earned you money, it was amber. Is sort of the game was called Amber Way that earned you money. So it was it was it was an interesting theme to me. But I think for a lot of people, it's not it's not going to get them excited. And it certainly didn't it didn't necessarily evoke the mechanics as well as I think it could have. Okay. Uh, so then we started exploring other themes, other ideas. And the World's Fair idea came up and it was really sort of one of those light bulb moments where you realize you start thinking about all the ways that the mechanics could fit in with that theme and how we could. Um, you know, tweak or improve them to to really make it evoke the theme. And it was sort of one of those things that, you know, once the ball starts rolling in that direction, you just, it just seems so natural. And that was the direction it took. And that was in this roughly the spring of this year, maybe May, or maybe even earlier in that March or April. So it's been, you know, four or five months of developing under that World's Fair theme. And it's in terms of, of, of games and turnaround, that's, I think, fairly quick. But I think uh, it's really a testament to, to Randy's commitment and uh, really his focus on the game as we were able to, you know, get dozens and hundreds of playtests in and 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 really get this game out to a point now where it's going on Kickstarter. I think is sort of you know it's almost a finished product. It's it's got a lot of the art there, all the mechanics are in, the rules are you know we have one or two things we're we're still looking at in the rules with. You know the length of the rounds and the starting setup and things like that, but for the most part, people are going to see sort of a, a pretty finished product that uh, you know I'm really proud of, and I think it's it's not only a good game but has a lot of those thematic elements that I think when people hear about the World's Fair theme, uh, I think I think I hope it'll do it justice. Uh, I guess we'll see on Tuesday, but yeah, I'm really excited about it. No, it's really cool. I I mean I think it could have worked if it was like zombie trading amber in the space baltics you probably sure. could have gotten that past yeah. <laughs> some people but i don't know i'm personally interested by trading amber in the baltics but i yeah i understand the direction that you know randy and yourself kind of went with yeah maybe that'll become a different game but yeah uh, <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's fascinating but yeah it's certainly not as widely appealing or um even to me as interesting as as the world's fair is and there's just so many fascinating tidbits i was a. Uh... I, you know, and kind of in looking in some things for this this chat as well as playing the game, we've got the the review copy, et cetera, we're right in the review. I was just going through like fun facts, and it's yeah, I don't know. It's if anything, I really, and this is why I appreciate like designs like Mac Gertz is because he he puts that history in it, and I, mm-hmm. I really enjoy that. And I think you and Randy have done a really good job with the individual cards within this. So just yeah. to give everyone a a quick kind of understanding of the game, if they haven't seen it already, it's just so it's a it's a basically it's a light to medium area control game yeah would you agree with that yeah yeah absolutely so and in the game you're going around you're placing on these five different areas of the fair and you're collecting what why am i telling you i'll let you explain this so alex tell us about this game sure uh yeah so it's sort of a a, i call that a lot drafting area majority game so you're trying to collect exhibits that that you want to get approved in the fair and the way the way you get them approved into the fair is by controlling the different areas that the exhibits are associated with. So there's uh, electricity exhibits associated with, obviously, the electricity building in the fair. So in order to get those exhibits approved, you have to control the electricity uh, area. So the way the scoring works is you score more points at the end for the more diverse exhibits you're able to collect. So it actually 
gives an interesting dynamic where, you know, just controlling the same area over and over again is not going to be that helpful to you um, because you need to control different areas to get different things approved and then have that diversity at the end of the game to score the most points. So it's sort of an interesting twist on uh, an area majority game where, you know, each turn you're placing one of your supporters in an area, but that's also going to determine, you know, your supporters will determine who controls that area, obviously whoever has the most but where you place your supporter will determine what cards you'll get. So what exhibits you might get, what actions you might get to use for your next turn, if the scoring realm might occur. So there's sort of a lot of different decisions layered in one uh, in one choice each, each round. So it plays quick. It's about a 30 to 45 minute game. But I think it feels like a satisfying experience, uh, even within that time frame. So and, and like I said, there's all these these thematic elements also built into every single card of the game even though there's really only three types of cards there's action cards there's midway uh cards that sort of move the game along and give you points and then there's the exhibit cards that you're trying to prove almost every single card in the game is unique um either has a unique uh attraction or exhibit on it unique artwork or um the only thing that's not unique is the influential people there's something like i think eight different influential people and there's a couple of of duplicates of those in the deck but in general it's it's really we really found a lot of real estate to evoke a lot of the thematic elements that i think are really interesting see that is exactly what i was trying to say but you said it better (laughs) (laughs) yeah no playing it we introduced it um last night to my brother who's more of a a casual gamer he likes Mm -hmm. a lot of light uh, dexterity and deduction there's kind of lighter kind of style games filler uh and he really enjoyed this one and we we got a kick out of just trying to approve the different things and we really liked i think we all do even to, no matter what our gaming style we really like the history within yeah. board games and you and randy did a great job and you know our prototype was excellent but i'm i'm informed that the the final version is going to be even better with like you said individual art on every card which is yeah. nuts because there's like 80 or 90 cards in the game so it's it's definitely it's definitely well worth checking out for sure so let's talk about foxtrot a little bit because Mm -hmm. uh, we've we've had some experience from from our side of things with lanterns great Mm -hmm. games uh randy's been really fun um and excellent to work with from a reviewer standpoint but Mm -hmm. from the designer standpoint uh, have you found working with foxtrot how did that relationship kind of blossom yeah, so it's 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 been terrific. So I first met Randy at Gen Con of last year. Um, actually, sat down to play a game of Lanterns and hadn't been kickstarted yet. Was still sort of partial prototype art. Had that uh, sweet banner. I remember that. From yeah, the Gen sweet Con banner. Twenty fourteen uh, banner. I was like, that looks cool. <laughs> yeah. So just sort of randomly sat down and was blown away by how good it was. Uh, and then I, th- I think in a couple of places named it. You know, my favorite game I'd played at Gen Con and just sort of knew that they had a winner uh, in that game. And I, that after seeing Lanterns, it really made me want to pitch a game to Randy. And, and it turns out that the World's Fair was sort of, you know, of a similar weight as Lanterns, sort of for a similar audience. And um, I, I knew Lanterns was going to be really successful and I wanted to, you know, get on that bandwagon while I still could. Uh, so fortunately enough, uh, Randy saw through the, the Baltic Samber theme uh, like the game enough that uh, he signed it, and now we're here with with this with this really cool game. But uh, the process was was probably, um, and this is not saying anything bad about any of the other publishers I work with. They've all been great, but has been one of the most satisfying experiences with the publisher I've had. 
you know, all of the decisions I've been included on, all of the, I mean, we exchange emails almost daily about different parts of the game, different ideas, both in terms of art and components and player colors and all of these things I've been included on. And it's really been really a collaborative experience, more so than any other uh, experience I've had. And and Randy's essentially poured everything he has into this game, um, Mm -hmm. really focused on this one game almost over anything else. It's sort of like, uh, given that they've only put out one game a year, you know, Lanterns was last year and Relic Expedition was the the year before. Uh, It's almost that Days of Wonder type model where he really just pours everything he has into this one game in terms of research, in terms of development, all of these things. And it's it's been fantastic. I think the final product is, you know, better than I could have ever imagined. And a lot of that is due to to Randy's tireless commitment to to making it uh, as perfect as we can. Those are good answers because Randy listens to the show. So <laughs> okay, good. Maybe maybe I'll get to do another game with him. Yeah, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll make sure to delete all the other parts that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So as far as other projects you've got going on, you mentioned Gold West, and I've had a chance to play Gold West. I got that at Gen Con, and you also have uh, Dasu. I'm I'm going to pronounce that wrong. It spells. It's fine. Daxu. Yeah, so I'll just call it Daxu. Dashu, it's, not, it's not technically correct, but Daxu is sort of the most phonetically correct, so people can actually find it. It's the most American. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we pronounce everything wrong. Yeah. Um, so talk to me while I got you. Talk to me a little yeah. bit about these, because I know Gold West was something that, and these are both games that you didn't crowdfund, which mm-hmm. is which is awesome in its own right, because that just saves that extra little bit of headache <laughs> and stress. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about those games. Yeah, Gold West. Uh, I'm so excited about Gold West. So it's actually coming. So it's it had a sort of very limited release at Gen Con, only a few cases, but it's getting its its worldwide debut um, just this week, September 30th. All of the pre-orders are shipping and it's available on all on Amazon or cool stuff at your local game store. Um, I'm so excited for it. It's so for those who don't know much about the game, it's, it's a 45 to an hour long Euro medium weight Euro style game. Got a few different elements of area control and resource management and has this Mancala mechanic where you're sort of managing your supply track, how fast your resources come out. And, And I'm just so excited for it. It's, it's, Maybe the game that I've had the most sort of is as close to the form in which I pitched it mm-hmm. as it's being released. Uh, and Adam McIver did the the art and graphic design and did a fantastic job. Um, and the components that TMG put into it are uh, really top notch. So I'm I'm super excited for it. So uh, so that's Gold West, and then also releasing uh, sort of wide release at Essen, which is coming up very soon, is Daxu, which is sort of a a I would call it an idiosyncratic two-player game uh, <laughs> where it really has, some people call it like a rock, paper, scissors type mechanic. I call it prisoner's dilemma type mechanic where, uh, you know, th- a lot of three cards are put out and you're essentially deciding whether you want all those for yourself or all of those for your opponent. And and you're making a decision to either give the cards, to take the cards, or to cooperate or undermine your opponent. Uh, and sort of both players receive or reveal simultaneously and then Based on what cards they play, the cards either go to you or go to your opponent. And the, and the whole idea is is players are going to score points for the the types of sets that they win. So you're collecting sets of cards in different shop types. And you'll score points for the sets that you win, but you'll score fewer 
if you win by too many cards. So if you win by one card, so if I have five and you have four, I'll score the most points. Whereas, for instance, if I have seven and you have two, I'm actually going to lose points and then you're going to get points. So it's really incentive to sort of keep the different sets close. So I, th- I think it's a really interesting game and sort of an interesting mind game with, with what cards you're going to play. Um, some people who don't like that um, sort of double think type action might not enjoy it that much. But I think it's a really interesting game and really an interesting game to sort of play with the same person, you know, a few times in a row because you can start sort of mm-hmm. predicting, you know, how they might think it and things yeah. like that. So uh, in their head. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's sort of a, it's 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 interesting in that sense, and I don't think it's going to appeal to everyone. But I think the people who like it are going to really like it. Cool. So yeah, so the, those two, so I guess those three, World's Fair, Gold West, and uh, Daxu are all sort of making a debut in some sense here in the next few weeks. Uh, obviously, World's, World's Fair won't be won't be uh, in people's hands until next year, but it sort of feels like we're debuting it uh, with the yeah. Poster. Why not? So we we discussed, and I've had a chance to play Gold West. I really enjoy it. Uh, I've discussed my thoughts on it here um, as well earlier. Uh, I guess it was like three episodes ago or so. I need to ask you, though. Yeah. The bottom mine shaft, so the one with the three points. Yeah. Is that worthwhile? I, I'm yeah. just I'm so, still working out strategies on where to put my mind shaft. I have to ask you while I have you. Yeah. So I, <laughs> so I, listen, I listen to your show. Okay. Um, and it got me thinking. So that is a strategy I like to play. So if, if you get enough building resources, you know, in the few, in the, you know, the zero or the one or the mm-hmm. two shaft, you can um, take a few turns where you really pile things in that that fourth mine shaft. Yeah. Um, and if you watch the the watch it played gameplay video of Gold West just came out this week. Not the description, but the act when Rodney and Pep are actually playing the game. Yeah. Pep is actually doing that strategy quite well, where he's really loading up that that yeah. fourth mineshaft. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But uh, in my experience, it's been... So I understand the criticism where the most resources you can get in a single turn is three. Mm-hmm. So having that fourth mineshaft, you can't put stuff in there and then be able to use something from that in your next turn. Mm-hmm. But you can sort of plan ahead where you could start piling things in there and then have sort of a big turn where you yeah. flush everything from that. Oh, I've, I've seen it work. Yeah. I, the first game we played, um, Ben Pitchback's brother, Joe, Yeah, he did that and he started stockpiling the fourth the mm-hmm. fourth shaft there, getting those three points. And then he had like two big turns where he just knocked out, you know, an investment or two. Yeah. And he won that game. So, I, I mean, it's not that it's not viable. So yeah. um, it's just, I know when my brother was playing, he just, it didn't click right away. So we, we've had some discussions about it, but I was like, yeah. I think it is a strategy you can explore. And what's great about gold West is there, there's so many different avenues. Everyone can go like, so you can go to Boomtown, or you could deliver, or you could invest, yeah. or there's just a number of different ways you can go, which is really neat. I really like that because every game I've played, each player is kind of veered off in their own path. And we've all kind of come back into this really tight kind of a uh, scoring range at the end, which is awesome. So it's a, it's a very, very well designed game. I have to. I have yeah. to commit. Uh, to I that. appreciate that. That's that's sort of what I wanted. Is you know, design a game that, um, you know, sort of makes you want to play it a few times to just mm-hmm. explore the different, the different routes. And it's one of those games where you can get to the end and just you know realize if you could have just done one or two things better that that uh, you know you would have done better. It's exactly. sort of like sort of like golf in that sense where 
you know, you have a few good shots, but then you have a few bad shots and that's sort of what, what keeps you coming back Yeah, <laughs> uh, is, is I really wanted a game with it. I feel like we're in a situation now where there's so many games coming out and there's just so many games to play that people typically don't want to play the same game again that much. It's sure. sort of one experience and then they're done. Yep. So it was really one of my design goals was create a game that people will want to play over and over again. That's, mm-hmm. you know, short enough and easy enough to teach that they could to sort of, of create a game that, that has some staying power instead of just being, you know, one and done, like, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of games are these days. So. Yeah, no. And, and it hits, it hits a really good sweet spot as far as timing. I think we've knocked most of our games out in like 60 minutes with mm-hmm. four players, which is yeah. awesome. I mean, that's just a great, and it's a good experience as well, which so yeah. again, bravo on that. Oh, thanks. Cool. So, all right. So now I'm going to run you through because everyone knows we love trivia on this show. Oh boy. Um, I don't know why we love trivia. <laughs> it's all right. Because yeah. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I get to pick my category. Like yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I've got uh, one, two, three, four. I've got five I'll worlds. Take, I'll take seven Feld games for for four hundred. Oh, you and me both, bro. <laughs> you and me both. I love them all. I just played. Um, Last week I played The Name of the Rose for the first time. Oh yeah. Such a such a different felt experience, but yeah. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I haven't played that one. I haven't played that one and I haven't played Luna yet, which I'm really excited for the reprint of. Yeah. That. Same here. I've held out on Luna just for yeah. the reprint, but yeah, Name of the Rose, if you ever get a chance, it's a really interesting design. It's uh it's obviously got the IP yeah. of the movie and the book, but yeah. it's a deduction game at its heart and the way Feld's huh. done it, it's got you know, some small, you like, you see it's a Feld, like when you're playing, yeah. like, oh, Feld, you, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like, it's, it's just really engaging how, um, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So it's pretty cool. All right. So, yeah, these, this is World's Fair trivia because right. as the designer of a game about the World's Fair, I'm hoping you know a little bit about it, but you might not. So, but, and who cares? It's already signed. And we're about to find out. It's judgment, it's judgment time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, question one. Yeah. How many visitors approximately attended the Chicago World's Fair in 1893? Is it A, 32 million, B, 27 million, C, 100 million, or D, 15 million? I want to say 27 million. You are correct, sir. There you go. Look, there goes the goose egg. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I can still get an F, but I can't get a zero. At least, like in college, like if you got shut out in beer pong, at least you still have your pants. So right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't have to do a naked run. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So there were two finalist cities for the 1893 World's. Mm-hmm. What was the other one outside of Chicago? Because obviously Chicago won. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it St. Louis, Washington, D.C., New York, or Boston? I want to say New York. You're correct, sir. Yeah. I know the others were. So I think. St. Louis did have a World's Fair at some point. I think uh, St. Louis was the next one, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, 1903 or something like that. Yeah, right. actually, D.C., St. Louis, and New York, and as well as Chicago, were the four semifinalists. And then yeah. it came down to New York. And see, this is what I like about these games. They make me smarter. Yeah, now, no, totally. This no, I can't problem. even tell you how many times I've been watching Jeopardy, and it's something that I know from playing a game. It's yeah. like, it's <laughs> like, oh, that's the Alhambra, of course. Exactly, like, duh. It's like, yeah. I don't want to play that game, but I'll answer the question. <laughs> so, okay. So this one's a, this one's a little maybe trickier, but I didn't know it. Maybe you will. Who was the principal architect behind the world's fair? Was it Dion Geraldine, Henry Van Brunt, Daniel Burnham, 
or George Post? Uh, so Daniel Burnham was sort of the main organizer, so I will say C. Done. Correct, sir. Nice. He is in the game as well. Yes, he is. It's very powerful action. He well. is, actually. Yeah. yeah. All those guys are. I really like yeah. it. So if you're playing the game, collect the dudes. <laughs> that is my strategy hint for you. But also get some exhibits, too. That's true. You got to get them. Which beloved ride made its debut? This is pretty much a softball. So was it the roller coaster, the merry-go-round, the bumper cars, or the Ferris wheel? It is the Ferris wheel. Yep. But I will say one of the proposals, uh, so the Ferris wheel is sort of the the counterpart of the Eiffel Tower. What the Eiffel Tower was to the Paris World's Fair is the, the Ferris wheel to the Chicago World's Fair. And one of the proposals was a toboggan type <laughs> type ride that went, I forget how far it went, but it was something absolutely ridiculous like like Chicago to to Cleveland or something like that. Like oh, wow. completely <laughs> infeasible by any stretch of the imagination, but Sweet. would have been completely awesome if they could have pulled it off. It would um, have been. Right. But that's your next you design. Cool runnings. Yeah. Could you imagine if you like <laughs> you get on this ride in Chicago and then you end up in Cleveland like, <laughs> back six then hours it's like later. Okay. Yeah. Have yeah. a horse ready for me. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess I'm here. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're moving to Cleveland, it's awesome. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, you're in trouble. All right, man. You're four for four. So last one. Which Let's U.S. See. president opened the fair? Was it Teddy Roosevelt, William McKinley, Grover Cleveland, or Barack Obama? Oh man, I want to say. So I want to say it's William McKinley. False. <laughs> you can say something else if you want to. It was actually Grover Cleveland. Oh, opened and I just said Cleveland, but in a different Exactly. Sense. Grover Toboggan Cleveland. <laughs> so four out of five, man. That's not bad. I'll take I'll take a B. That's, a B minus. That's an 80%. But in our on our podcast, that's like with a curve, that's at least like 120. Oh, nice. I wouldn't have known any of those. <laughs> so I get like 1.2 credits for this class. Exactly. There you go. Nice. And we're we're gonna um for those who don't know, we're gonna talk to Randy uh in a separate segment, and I'm gonna put him through the same ones and we'll see if the He'll publisher really did his research. He'll get put him there. Sure. I might even throw in a harder question for him. But yeah. so all right, before I let you go, I'm going to run you through one other quick thing that we like to do on this podcast. Awesome. Something we've started. Cool. So this is called Keep, Trade, or Burn. Oh. And what we do is when we have a designer on, we do it the designer edition. Ooh. So what what you get to do is I'm going to give you three games. Okay. And they're going to be three of your games. Oh, and you boy. get to keep one. Mm-hmm. You have to trade one. And mm-hmm. you have to burn one. Mm-hmm. So burning means no more copies in existence. Trading means you could probably play it with a friend if they're nice and keep is obviously staying in your collection. Okay. So I'm going to give you World's Fair, Jeez. Dash U, and Gold West. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> um, God, it's so hard. I love Gold West and I love World's Fair. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I guess Dash U is the one I would burn. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's one of my games. So all that beautiful. <laughs> if you have it, please don't art. burn it uh, and still check it out. But. I I just love World's Fair and I love Gold West, so it's a really hard choice. I guess I would, I guess I would keep World's Fair only because uh, I can play it with more people. Um, okay. So I could still play it with my family. I could still play it with people who aren't really non-gamers. Gold West is sort of that next step game that maybe after they played a few games, you could introduce them to that. But uh, I love them both so much. But yeah, to be fair, to answer the question. Keep World's Fair, trade Gold West. Okay. But I would be very sad about it. 
Yeah, and most people are. I know when they run us, like when Tiff and Matt and I run through it, it's just like, <gasps> like <laughs> it's like I can't do any of these. These yeah. are all my babies. But don't worry, I'm gonna run Randy through it, and Randy's gonna have to choose from Lanterns, Relic Expedition, and World's Fair. So he might cry. No. <laughs> can you trade me lanterns for gold west exactly there yeah, you go. There you go. And then you can both play it when you meet up at gen right. cool man well thank you so much for coming on with us uh, this really has been a lot of fun and if you um i'm gonna let you plug away so if there's cool. anything you want to say feel free yeah so the world's fair will be out on kickstarter uh the 29th so tuesday of september please check it out even if you do don't really back kickstarters or aren't interested in backing just check out the page and see all the really great art and all of the work that you know randy and fox have put into this game uh and then no obviously gold west will be out this week as well check that out if you're interested and uh, i'm on twitter at alex with ideas uh, if you ever want to reach out or you know chat about whether or not there should be four uh shafts in gold west or not <laughs> uh feel free to reach out but no thanks for having me on and, and it's been great uh chatting with you guys so thanks excellent thank you and i will vouch for world's fair go check it out our review will be up this week as well on tuesday when it launches it'll be on the kickstarter page and gold west awesome that review will be up probably in the next couple weeks and once i get my copy of dash you i will let you know if i love it or hate it so thanks again alex i appreciate it thanks guys All right, welcome back, everyone. Um, I am happy to be joined by the other half of the World's Fair 1893 project, Mr. Randy Hoyt of Foxtrot Games, the publisher and or developer. Uh, I'm assuming you uh, take on both roles for the most part. Absolutely. So happy to have you, Randy. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here again for the yes, second exactly. time appearing on the co- on the podcast. Randy has just pulled into a friendly tie with Mr. Matt Riddle for our most uh, visited guest, um, <laughs> and we'll let them battle it out over the next 12 months to see who can make it three. Is that, means- that uh, two points and I can approve two exhibits? Exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, have, you have tied area majority in podcasting. Uh, go ahead and flip a couple. So All right. starting off, um, I just want to say last time – you joined us. We were talking lanterns with yourself and Chris Chung, and you know, congratulations on the success of lanterns. I know when we talked last time, you had you know you had high hopes for the game, and so did we. We loved it when we played it. But did you imagine it would become as successful as it was? I mean, it's a it's a Menza Select Award winner. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. I mean, I I knew the game was really good. I knew I really <laughs> liked it. I knew a lot of people would like it. The big question was could I reach those people? And I mean, I forget when where we were in the campaign when we talked, but before the campaign, I I was worried that nobody would want to back a simple game on Kickstarter that wasn't a micro game. Um, <laughs> that's where I was when we launched. I was just hopeful. I was like, if we make the art pretty enough, if we make the theme really fit with the mechanics well enough, we make it really feel clever, um, w- could people go for it? And they did. I mean, the campaign did pretty well, but it's definitely done much better um since then in retail and and we we have found the market for the game and i'm very pleased with that yeah and the the final production is is really good i mean even the prototype you sent us originally was (laughs) great but uh i was very impressed um 
the final production. It was so easy to punch out. I haven't had my little uh, 15-month-old son help me with it. So <laughs> That's pretty risky. You're, you're a brave man, but yeah. yeah. We, I, I was really pleased. I was really pleased with everything. And we, we unlocked all the stretch goals on that campaign, so we had those favor tokens, which I just love those wood favor tokens. Yeah, they are pretty neat. They're, uh, they're a nice touch to the game. So I won't make you give the elevator pitch, because we had Alex kind of give that already in our last segment. <laughs> but I'm curious, from, from the publisher side of things, so this is your third Kickstarter project. We're talking about World's Fair 1893, obviously, again. You know, each time I talk to a, a publisher or a designer that's used Kickstarter for one of their projects, that they've always said that they learn new lessons, tips, tricks, all kinds of new things with each project, regardless of mm-hmm. how many times they've put themselves out there. Mm-hmm. So what kind of, what lessons did you take away from your, your Lanterns Kickstarter that you've kind of hoped to apply for this World's Fair project? The biggest thing that I learned, which I mean, and it's not really that novel, I suppose, is you need to have an audience or a following um, when you launch. I think with the first campaign, I had more of a if you build it, they will come approach. <laughs> and they did eventually, but it was a lot of blood, sweat and tears with that first campaign to in the middle of the campaign, find the audience for that game and, and get them to back the game on Kickstarter. And, you know, with Lanterns. I had a small following from Relic Expedition that I could leverage, and I grew I grew a lot of um, fans and friends on social media in that year and change between the two campaigns, um, and just learned a lot about how to reach out to reviewers, how to reach out to um, you know more playtesters that new people in the industry that you know getting them to be advocates of the game, not just to test the game, but then to be advocates and fans during the campaign, and. With Lanterns, a lot of it was an experiment. Like, will this really work? Can I send out 20 review copies in advance to people and have it really help? And it did. I mean, Lanterns funded 50% on its first day, 160 backers, um, which was much better than my first campaign did. And it was a lot of just using that same approach, you know, pushing it even harder. Um, You know, having a thousand backers from one campaign definitely helps as you go into your next campaign. So they were all, I I suppose they were lessons that I had learned after Relic Expedition, put into place with Lanterns to see if they would work, and then now I'm doing it just at a much bigger scale um, with with World's Fair. Excellent. So when we talked to Alex, we kind of, we touched on how the game was not originally World's Fair 1893, Mm -hmm. it was Trading Amber in the Baltic. So I need to ask you from the publisher side of things, what about Trading Amber in the Baltics did not appeal to you? <laughs> uh, somebody on Reddit said today, they said, that sounds like a game Rio Grande would have published in 2001. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, so what didn't appeal to me? Actually, it was really interesting because the the I studied a lot about Amber when I first when Alex first pitched it to me. So I... I got some like academic book off of Amazon, you know, some like out of print academic book to learn about the Baltic uh, amber trade and <laughs> and learning about <laughs> Emperor Nero in Rome sent some emissary out to the Baltics and he came back with this like huge stash of amber. Um, and it was all like really fascinating, but we just couldn't get it to translate into a game that was delightful to the target audience. The, you know, it's kind of a dry, boring theme. And while all the, the sort of backstory of it was pretty interesting, you're just picking up some glass and some paper and taking it here and there and picking up some amber. So 
Um, we I took it to Unpub with the Amber theme. We we made it a bit more Roman and made you know brought in Nero and his yeah. palace into the story at Unpub, and people were like, you know, that that's all right. <laughs> They're like, I, I would downplay the palace and just make it about trading or like people didn't really know what to do with with the theme. So we just took a long hard look at it after Unpub and said, you know, this just isn't gonna this isn't gonna do what we needed to do. I think Alex said if if we were if I was a German publisher not using Kickstarter I may have been able to find an audience with this theme maybe yeah um, but definitely where we were going with it and also I mean the it's not just that we needed to change it to make it something marketable it just the mechanics just didn't really fit it either um, you know when you're trading in the Baltics and you you just imagine this old you know Renaissance style or ancient style art it's very heavy and very very old and ancient and distant feeling and it doesn't feel light and pleasant like the mechanics are you know and i I think it it caused a disconnect between the theme not just because it was kind of uninteresting and overdone but also because it just didn't it didn't make your eyes sparkle (laughs) like like the mechanics that the smooth quick play of the mechanics do and so there was that disconnect which was even more important to me to get the the theme and the mechanics to feel good together than to make it marketable. Although obviously if you can do both, (laughs) that's even better. Yeah. No, I have to say like, I, I mean, I've only had experience with lanterns and world's fair of your two. I have not yet somehow not played relic expedition. (laughs) I will eventually get to it. But I, I, when I was playing world's fair, I, I've kind of noticed with your games, there's a real kind of simplicity and, as you said, smoothness kind of to the the mechanics and just the flow and pace of the game. And it really kind of shined through in World's Fair as well. Like, Lanterns was as about as smooth sailing as you could come. That game just it flowed seamlessly. And then World's Fair, I think you guys did a really great job with that as well. So it's funny that you mentioned, you know, the, the smoothness and how it didn't link with the um, the theme because I could I could see that. And, and yeah. <laughs> that, that seems to be, you know, and as an observer, that seems to be something that you're really keen on bringing to the tabletop mm-hmm. is that kind of mm-hmm. that connect between the theme and the mechanics mm-hmm. and just making it all just as smooth as possible. So so how did you come up with the World's Fair theme? <laughs> I really like this theme. I think it's a very underutilized piece of Americana. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. fascinated and we'll talk about it in a minute, kind of what I learned about it, et cetera. But how did you come mm-hmm. up with this one? Yeah, so I was looking at what kinds of games had themes like uh, Amber Way, or that was what it was called at the time, Amber Way, and they were definitely heavier games. You know, you think like Glass Road, something like that, um, yeah. is more what you would sort of expect from being a merchant in some ancient world. And so I was like, what, what level or what kind of experience is this game making? And I was drawn back to Ticket to Ride. I think the game's a little heavier than Ticket to Ride. Heavier is not the right word, just complex. Area majority is a trickier uh, beast for a gateway game just because, Mm -hmm. you know, Ticket to Ride, it's like, oh, I play some cards and I build, and we're all just building and building and building, and we're all gaining points. But with majority, area majority, there's this, well, I already have five guys more than my opponent. If I put down another cube, I don't get any points, really. I'm not gaining, and there's a tug-of-war sense that is not always as obvious, you know, it's not just, oh, well, I build a route and that's obviously good because I'm getting more points. So there's a little bit more complexity, I think, in kind of understanding how to manage majorities. But I was looked back at Ticket to Ride in sort of that era, I guess it's 1920s, I think, is the Ticket to Ride feel. Yeah. And it, it hit me that it's it's historical, but not in a heavy, old, antiquated kind of way. You know, you don't think of Ticket to Ride as being the dusty 
shelves of an old library in mm-hmm. the same way that you think of these sort of heavier games. So I was like, so we need historical would be good and lighter than than these. And I think it's always hard to remember the exact path these things go because you know creative ideas usually come when you're sleeping or showering. You're not really thinking yep. about them. But I think the path was to Hugo. My wife and I rented uh, Hugo. We'd read the book years ago when it was out and we just never got around to seeing the movie. So we were watching that, that set in, in France in great movie in like, yeah, early 1900s. It's before ticket to ride. Um, I believe it, there's a shot of the Eiffel tower and I was like, Oh, instead of building Nero's palace, what if you were building the Eiffel tower? That would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So, you know, Wikipedia Eiffel tower. And they're like, you know, the Eiffel tower was built for the world's fair. And, it, and I'm like, world's fair like oh my goodness that seems really interesting I, i've been to the space needle i've seen the carousel of progress at disney world mm-hmm. and and i just remembered all these thoughts i'd had at those places you know what happened to world's fairs why don't we have world's fairs anymore what's going on there so i started just digging back into kind of world's fair history you know got a book on the 1851 world's fair in london it was sort of the first event known as a world's fair um started reading through this book and like the first half of the book was all about the political and social influence needed to like pull something like this off. And I thought, who would have thought that it was that organizing a fair was all about like using your influence to make things happen and calling in favors from people. And it just it really like it's not what I would have expected yeah. that to be. And so I made up a like a sample box cover of what the World's Fair london 1851 box cover might look like just got like a stock logo some vintage logo and found a painting and started showing it around to people doing some market research and people were like oh that's great but you should do the world's fair with a ferris wheel the 1893 one was like well look at that and alex is from chicago i think he had suggested looking at the chicago world's fair as well he spent he's not from chicago but he spent some time in chicago in graduate school and that's where he really started game designing and um, just sort of, you know, multiple influences all sort of pushing to that fair. I watched um, the documentary Expo that you can see, I think mm-hmm. it's on Netflix or Amazon. It's got Gene Wilder as the narrator. Like, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and I read Devil in the White City at someone's recommendation. I was like, you know, there is there's there's definitely something we can do here and that this is capturing because of all the fun attractions. It was the first fair to have like a separate area for like fun attractions, um, the Ferris wheel, the captive balloon and all that, that I felt like it was a lighter, you know, it was a lighter fare than others. And it just had that grand, um, that grand feel and also that fun feel. And it just seemed like it would be perfect for my line. And for this game, it just sort of exuded that same feeling that I thought the mechanics did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's a, it's a great marriage as you mentioned. So, I know me personally playing the game, like I, I know of the World's Fair. I kind of know the big kind of monumental things that came out of the Ferris wheel, the Eiffel Tower, the Needle, like you mentioned. But mm-hmm. I didn't know a lot about the fair itself. And and mm-hmm. this game, I'm not even gonna lie, it kind of it forced my hand in kind of doing a couple <laughs> internet searches, and I was I was really drawn to like all the kind of interesting things that there were to kind of research. So. When you were researching this theme, like what talk to me about like one piece of kind of history that you found to be most interesting. What what kind of really stuck out to you when you were kind of doing your market research and your thematic research? 
Well, I'll tell you like one of the most obscure things I found, which was pretty pretty funny, and then I'll talk more generally. Um, there is so much from 1893 that's in the public domain. And so Google has scanned all these books in old libraries. So there is so much original um, primary source material on this. So Googling in Google Books, I found all kinds of things. And one of the funny stories, I found a magazine or a journal called Horology Monthly, which is the study of time and watches. And they were talking about how the... At, at a convention in Bern, the major watchmakers of Switzerland got together and decided that they should go to the World's Fair. They got together at their annual convention in Bern. Somebody traveled from Chicago throughout all of Europe trying to convince people to come to the fair, and so they decided that they would go. Well, Bern was one of the locations in the uh, game when it had an amber theme. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, I mean, that was a pretty cool thing to, like, latch on to and see that, like, as an organizer going around and trying to convince people to submit things to the fair was a, was a thing that happened. And so we've got switch Swiss watches as one of the manufacturing exhibits. And I started Googling some of the names of the companies that were there and found one of them, you know, still is a prominent Swiss watchmaker and they have a video on their site, a five minute video about their company and their history at the world's fair. And they have these videos and they have this really close up picture of of a custom watch they had made for the fair. Um, it's engraved on the back. It's engraved, you know, world's Columbian exposition, um, and a really nice reference photo that, and that's what Beth used for doing the exhibit, um, oh, for cool. that, the illustration for that card. So like you can go on Google and watch this video and see a picture of this watch. And the, there's like an 11 page or 12 page manual that they gave out or brochure that they gave out. And they like flip in this video, they like flip through it. So you can see, <laughs> what it looked like. Um, so that, that was this, there are so many, we've got 68 exhibits I think that are going to be in the game and to just dig through and find all these stories and all these reference photos for all of them has been really interesting. We're, we're going to have backers vote on some, so there we haven't decided on all of them yet, but we've got a, a big chunk of them already decided and about half of the artwork I think is already done. Maybe even more than that, um, for all these exhibits. Oh, that's great. And, and speaking of the exhibits, I know you're getting individual art on like every card in the game, which is pretty crazy. And looking at the project page, you talk about a number of kind of elements of the game that are typically stretch goal related of, to some degree, but you've decided to kind of incorporate them at the outset. What was your mindset behind that as far as um, putting that stuff in there right at the get-go? Watching, I've watched a lot of Kickstarter projects over the years, and you know there are some that the stretch goals are really core. You can tell they're really core to the funding levels, and so you know the game makes sense with these thirty little miniatures. If they raise some more funding, they're clearly going to be able to print more. They can clearly get a reduced price on those. They can clearly afford to put in now. You know they can change some of the other pieces that maybe we're going to be cardboard standees to those can be miniatures. And as it goes up, you know, it's obvious that you're going to be getting more miniatures in the game and they have a big enough following that they know that at, you know, with 30 miniatures, we can get enough backers to push it to where now we can afford 50. And once we get 50, then we know we can get another round of backers. And so it's all about the kind of the value and people wait a lot of times until stretch goals are unlocked before they jump in to the campaign. And when I looked at, 
you know, that makes sense. And, and that's sort of the idea behind it all. But I've seen a lot of campaigns in the last year where there's a mismatch between the value and the pledge level without the stretch goals. So you, I've seen a bunch of campaigns. Suddenly they'll like, well, we're just going to unlock the stretch goals. And then all of a sudden people flock to it. You know, they unlock them early. And I think having a good value is what's important. You know, people talk about, you know, you need stretch goals. And it's like, well, what you really need is the value. You really need to put up a product that makes sense at the price point um, for people to come back it. And I think if we, day one, say, here's all of our artwork, we're going to get all the backers that we would need to be able to afford to do that. You know, we could have done, and the plan was to do the same artwork on all the electricity exhibits, for example, to just put the electricity building. But all of a sudden the game isn't as exciting or interesting and the project page doesn't look as interesting or exciting when it's like, here's a picture of five buildings and if we get to 150%, we'll go do all these new artwork pieces. And I've seen campaigns where people say, hey, if we reach this goal, then we can afford the artwork. And like they start sharing pictures of the artwork before they reach the funding level. So it's like... Wait, is this even really a stretch goal, or is this yeah. just? Are you just playing a game with these people? And if you don't hit it, are you going to unlock it? So, you know, I looked long and hard and said, if if I make this game at all, for it to do well in retail, it's got to have this charm of all these exhibits, um, and that that's what's going to make the, the experience for people, especially trying to hit a kind of gateway audience. You know, a game that that gamers would be happy to play with their sort of non-gaming or light gaming family members that having all of that artwork and all of those exhibits would just make the whole experience so much more delightful for everyone. And I thought, if I'm going to make this game, I, I really want to have all this artwork in. I think that it'll bring more value to the table and more people will back it if we have it. So let's just go ahead and put it in. Also, the delays, like if I didn't start doing that artwork until after the campaign funded, <laughs> it'd be... You know, it'd be like, well, if we don't hit any stretch goals, I can get you the game in June. But if we hit all the stretch goals, it you'll be lucky to have it by next Christmas. Um, so you'd be just, 75% of my backed projects. <laughs> yeah. And it just seemed like it didn't make sense. For me, as a publisher, trying to bring games to market, for backers who want a better game but don't want to wait longer. I mean, what a weird position to put your backers in. Like, hey, do you want this really cool stretch goal if it delays your project six months? And so... You know, we just thought we'd give it a try. We'd say, you know, is it really about having stretch goals that people have to, you know, get more backers for you before they unlock? Or is it really about the value? And I think it's I think it's more about value than people will admit when they say you've got to have stretch goals. So in a way, it's an experiment. But I'm pretty confident that what people want is a good value. And having all this artwork in there is such a good, so much more valuable that I'm willing to bet our profits front that some of the profits we've earned from lanterns on it and say, you know what, if we bring good value, we'll overfund enough to be able to afford this and we'll have already done it and we can still get the game to backers on time. And the whole campaign experience is going to be so much better with just knowing from the outset, Hey, we're doing all this artwork. The page looks great. You can vote on some of the extra exhibits, you know, we don't have to wait till the last week before we decide, Oh, look, now we, now we got to start doing all these extra things. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think there, the, the risk is that there's nothing to get people excited about in the middle of the campaign. That's the, that's definitely the risk, but 
I I'm I think that all the the voting um, for exhibits, all the history we are going to be able to share, all the the chances we have to reach outside of the normal board game industry and find people who've never backed a Kickstarter board game project before, but would be interested in doing so because of the fair. I think all of that's going to going to give us that same momentum without having the the risk of delays and project overruns and all the sort of negative things that you often can see in stretch goals. Yeah, no, I think it's a I think it's a great way to do it. I'm personally happy that you did. So <laughs> if that matters any. <laughs> so I just had um one more quick question and then I'm going to run you through some trivia that we ran <laughs> Alex through and my last question kind of has to do with this strategic partnership you formed with Renegade Games, mm-hmm. um, who's just come about in the last year and a half, two years or so, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about what they've kind of brought to the equation, what in terms of their support and the the relationship that you guys have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you'll see more relationships like this as things grow. The industry is, I think, changing quite a bit. So it's called co-publishing is the official name and you just take all the things in the standard designer publisher relationship that a, a publisher license a, licenses a game from a designer and pays them royalties and then you know they pay for all the development and artwork and manufacturing and delivering games to distributors and retailers so you look at all that stuff that a publisher does and there's no reason you can't have two companies do that and you just divide up the the work and the profits along whatever lines you agree and so you can do you can do those kinds of relationships along any lines and you, all the things are negotiable of course um, I mean what 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 it works out for me as is that I I'm and with lanterns the division was much clearer because I raised all the funding myself before forming the partnership it's a little different I mean the relationship is exactly the same with World's Fair but we had it in place before we began is you know, I do the game, I sign the game, I do the development, the artwork, all of that stuff that the publisher normally does. I get quotes from the manufacturer and all that. And then I raise, I run a Kickstarter campaign and raise the money to hopefully recoup myself for the all the art costs and marketing that I've done and be able to pay for the manufacturing and the fulfillment and all that. And then Renegade really picks up with working with the manufacturer, working with distributors, um, working with retailers to push that, you know, once we've sold a thousand games on Kickstarter, you know, what do we do with the rest that we print? How do we keep this as a product for the market long term? Um, you know, Lanterns has done really well, and I credit a lot of that to Scott's um, at Renegade's uh, connections in the industry and knowledge in the industry. He's been um, working professionally full-time making games for a very long time and and knows a lot about how the industry works and he's provided so much knowledge and connections um for me to to reach places that i wouldn't have even known you know wouldn't even known how to how to get into those doors i mean lanterns is in barnes and noble amazon buys it from us as a retailer we've got great promotions and programs through our distributors and with retailers and all that's really put the game out there so that more people see it and more people buy it. Um, you know, we sold out of two print runs already, so that's 10,000 copies of the game. Wow. And we've got a third print run, I think, just arrived. And, you know, that's just night and day difference between Relic Expedition um, for me, my first game, 
I think I could have done a better job with lanterns than with Relic Expedition, but this was just a huge step up for me. And trying to do all this part-time, I have a full-time job still on the side, uh, or I just do this on the side. You know, I was getting to a point where I either needed to hire somebody to work with distributors and work with retailers, but this partnership came along, and um, and it's been really great. I mean, there's just, yeah, the, Lanterns is doing so well in the market, and, and a lot of that is because of the partnership with Renegade. That's awesome. Yeah, I was just, just curious how that works. So the whole, like you mentioned, the whole co-publishing relationship is something that's kind of up and coming, and it's, it's neat to see because it really does yeah. help, you know, I don't want to say balance yeah. things out, but it's a nice support system. Absolutely. I mean, and you, you know, some people, some Kickstarter publishers are getting acquired. Some are going, some like in my same position have been successful enough to go full time where they do manage everything themselves full time, which is, you know, there's a lot of different ways to be successful in this space. Um, I, I've seen more and more, um, more established publishers picking up games after Kickstarter and trying to co-publish them. I um, mean, even like a game like Machi Koro, you know, IDW um, is co-published that um, with Pandasaurus. And that's a relationship that, you know, it, it has existed, but I think it fits the Kickstarter audience or the Kickstarter publisher kind of crowd. Um, it fits it really nicely. So you've seen eight games and level 99 games um, and Renegade pick up other games from Kickstarter that have done well. Um, and bring them into their line. And I think it's a great chance to, for us part-time indie <laughs> game <laughs> designers and publishers to really get a boost um, in our companies and our product lines. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm, that's good to hear. All right, so I'm going to run you through some trivia, Randy. Now, I gave these <laughs> these five questions to Alex, and they're not, they're not hard. They're probably softballs for you, seeing as you've done so much research as you just described. So <laughs> You're making me nervous. <laughs> no, they're, not, they're really not that hard. I think I even knew most of them. But okay. Okay. Um, if there isn't a tie, I'm going to give you a bonus question that I didn't give Alex because I didn't know if there was a tie because we're recording these at different times. So <laughs> Excellent. Um, so first question, how many visitors approximately came to the world's fair 1893 was it a 32 million b 27 million c 100 million or d 15 million the number i had was 26 million so i'm going to say 27 Um, correct sir (laughs) say one in four americans attended the world's fair that's that's the that's the estimate yeah i'd love to go to one (laughs) i'm too young (laughs) Okay, so in addition to Chicago, what was the other finalist city? Was it St. Louis, D.C., New York, or Boston? Well, I think the answer you're looking for is New York, but there were St. Louis and Boston were also in the running at, at the same time. So, I mean, it was one big congressional meeting, and they I'm trying to remember the exact chronology, but Chicago jumped out to a lead. And then all of a sudden, New York gained on them, and I think it was all the other cities, St. Louis and Boston, were swung their votes to New York. So in the final voting, Chicago was ahead of New York. Um, so I'll go with New York is the answer there. That is correct. <laughs> even better answer than just saying C. <laughs> okay, and this is a this is a softball. So which beloved amusement park ride made its debut at the fair? The roller coaster, the merry-go-round, the bumper cars, or this thing called a Ferris wheel. Yeah, um, man, that's a tough one. 
I believe there was a merry-go-round at the fair, but I don't think it debuted there. So it was the uh, the Ferris wheel, absolutely. <laughs> it is true. And the Ferris wheel is the time tracker in the game, which is kind of a neat little incorporation. I really liked that. The, uh, yeah. the 13 cars around is around mm-hmm. kind of thing. That's pretty cool. All right, so question four. Which architect was a principal power behind the World's Fair in 1893? <laughs> was it Dion Geraldine, Henry Von Brunt? Daniel Burnham or Frank Lloyd Wright? Yeah, we're going to go with Daniel Burnham. He's uh, on a card, or he's on five cards in the game. <laughs> is it five or four? Where does it end? Yeah, it ended at five. There's four uh, George Davises and four Bertha Palmers and five Daniel Burnhams. Um, although, interesting enough, Frank Lloyd Wright's mentor was one of the uh, Burnham's competitors in Chicago, Louis Sullivan. That the the Louis Louis Sullivan story was very interesting. He fired for Frank Lloyd Wright for doing for moonlighting in 1893. <laughs> um, he was walking. He was down. He was in some residential district in Chicago, and he saw a house, and he said, "That is clearly Frank Frank Lloyd Wright's work." He called him out on it and fired him on the spot. <laughs> That's how the story goes. Um, but even after that, Frank Lloyd Wright still considered Louis Sullivan to be a mentor and was in a group of younger architects that followed his architectural philosophy. So yeah, that yeah. might've been more than you, the question called for, no, but no, I found Louis Sullivan, I found Louis Sullivan to be so interesting because he was clearly talented, um, but clearly felt slighted and, you know, that he felt like his firm should have been, uh, had a much bigger role in the, in the world's fair. And for some reason, it seems he was very bitter throughout his later life and just, it was a kind of a grumpy guy, but man, he was he was an architectural genius, they say. So, no, that's cool. I love this is the kind of history stuff I love about <laughs> the game, and I'm gonna actually go research some of this. So, all right, last one. All right, which U.S. president opened the fair? <laughs> I just concluded that in my update. <laughs> oh, okay. So, Teddy Roosevelt. This is the one Alex got wrong. So, Teddy Ooh. Roosevelt, William McKinley, <laughs> Grover Cleveland, or Barack Obama. <laughs> Ooh, ooh, Barack Obama. Maybe that's it. No, it was Grover Cleveland. Yep. He opened, I, I mentioned this in the update today. So they, <laughs> he rode in a carriage, you know, down on the opening day, they rode a long line of carriages, rode down the midway, um, past the unfinished Ferris wheel. The Ferris wheel was looking like a crescent moon at that time. It was only halfway built. And he opened the fair. They had a golden telegraph key, and he pressed it, and it set off all kinds of electric motors started, and it was a signal for all kinds of you know guns going off and things being revealed and fountains uh, erupting, and that kicked the fair off. But yeah, Grover Cleveland is the answer. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. When I saw that, I was like, well, I can't change the question because I already asked that. <laughs> so, all right, just just so you, you know, just because I want to ask it. And I'm curious if you know it, because I thought this was probably the most interesting thing for me. I don't know why, but which beer made its debut at the World's Fair? Well, it didn't make its debut there. Pabst um, beer was already a thing, but it supposedly won a blue ribbon. Yeah, that's, a, that's, sorry, that's, that's the thing I was going to, yeah, it won a blue yeah. ribbon. Which... They, so, so they named it. I mean, in all my research that I found, I... It's interesting. No one really is sure if they really did win a blue ribbon there or if they were medals. Uh, most of the exhibits, you would give out medals um, to the winners. So if you look, you know, reading about artists especially, that they'd say he won a gold medal in the Paris Fair and the Chicago Fair, you know, all of that. So um, it's it's sort of 
it might be a dubious claim even i i haven't been able to track down the uh their claims um for that but if i recall the pavilion that they had at the fair is now in milwaukee i think uh a game designer friend of mine tweeted at me a picture of it they've, they've it's been moved that's where their the beer is based yeah and uh, i think it used to be in in maryland actually wasn't it maybe Originally? yeah i feel like i don't know why Either way, whoever voted for it is ridiculous <laughs> because that beer is horrible. But <laughs> it might have it might have changed its recipe. It's 122 years is a long time. That's true. Um, but even the ones you drink today taste like they were made 122 years ago. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. So that was the bonus. I bet Alex would have got the bonus one. There right? you go. <laughs> well, you win. So All right. I'll make sure to relay that to Alex. But was it five? Was it five to four? Was that the final yep, score? Yeah, five to four. Alex was. Uh, <laughs> he just missed the president one, which I thought was one of the tougher ones because I can't keep my president straight ever. Yeah, and it was a different president that vote. I mean, he would just come. He had just taken office. Yep. Uh, January of 1893. So it was a different president that signed everything into you know signed the bill into law or whatever to award the fair to Chicago. And I'm if I remember right there. The president, I, I could be wrong about this. They they had a dedication ceremony in October 1892 where they dedicated many of the buildings. And so whoever was the president before Cleveland would have been president then. I don't know if that president came for that. That's a crazy story. So they dedicated all these buildings. And then over the winter, you know, all these buildings were built for the spring and summer and fall. So they weren't really built for winter or very severe winter, and Chicago had a really severe winter, and the largest building in the world was the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building, and it had a very heavy snow, and so after the building was dedicated, the roof collapsed. This is the largest open space building in the world, and they had to rebuild the roof after <laughs> the building collapsed. It's It was like a project manager's nightmare, yeah. um, the architecture <laughs> for this. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I don't even want to think about that, especially back then. It had to have been quite the endeavor. So, all right, one thing I didn't mention to you before. I'm going to put you on the hot seat real quick Uh-oh. Uh-oh. before I let you get into your plugs. We do a little <laughs> thing called Keep Trade Burn, publisher okay. edition. What we do when we have guests okay. on is we try and we run them through this little quick gauntlet that we like to do between Matt, Tiff, and I um, okay. on the show periodically. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three games, and these are three of your games. <laughs> and you're going to have to keep one, which is it stays in your collection. You're going to have to trade one to a friend, family member, random mm-hmm. person. But you can still play it, I guess, technically, because you okay. traded it. And you're going to okay. have to burn one so okay. it does, no longer exists. So I'm going to give you, <laughs> I bet you can guess, Lanterns, <laughs> Relic Expedition, World's Fair 1893. <laughs> this is not fair at all. <laughs> I made I mean, Alex this is... choose between his three designs. Oh, did you? Oh, and did he do it? He didn't just abstain? No, he did it. He did it. If he if he did it, I'll I'll do it. So <laughs> I I will start by I will burn Relic Expedition because I am the designer of that game and the publisher. So I won't be hurting anyone's feelings <laughs> if I do that. So we will we will do that. Um, I mean, I, I really enjoy that game. I love it. It wasn't quite the market success I had hoped it would be. It's a bit too expensive for the experience that it delivers. And I just didn't, when I started, I did not have any way to reach distributors and retailers and consumers. So mm-hmm. I've got, I've got a hundred and something copies. It's like on, on my game shelves, they, they just fill the back. So they're behind all the games. 
it's like every other shelf has Relic Expedition behind it. So um, I could burn, and it, and it has the most wood of all the games. So yeah, <laughs> it you would could, probably burn the longest. So you could save I love it. Bill. Yeah, I love it. Don't get me wrong, but if you're gonna make me do this, I will. I will burn that one. <laughs> and then now, now, now you're really putting me in a tough spot with uh, Alex's game or Chris's game. So. If I can still play both of these, I I will keep I will keep Lanterns primarily because it was the first my first experience publishing someone else's design. So it was the very first time working with another designer, and the first cut is the deepest, I suppose. I sure. I'm gonna have to say um, That's a viable answer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I it's totally unfair of you to ask me this. I mean, I probably should have said I'd keep world's fair because it's the one that's actively seeking funding on Kickstarter. That probably would have been the smarter way to go um, with this, but yeah, so I would keep lanterns as the, the first game that, and, and you know, before I had found lanterns, I was definitely in a spot of, I, I want to do this. I want to publish someone else's game, but how will I ever find one? You know, I'm a tiny little publisher with no reach really like how how am i going to how am i even going to do this and what kind of a game will make me love it so much that i want to work on it as much as my own design so lanterns was you know it was a big turning point for me it's like oh here's a game i love here's something i'm really excited about i can do this let's see how it works um so i'll keep lanterns and and i would trade I'll trade World's Fair as long as I can play it. Um, Consider it to be like spreading the love. You're giving yeah. the joy out to the world. Yes. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> yes. Well, and there are, you know, whatever, ten, more than 10,000 copies of Lanterns in the world, whereas right now there's 20 copies of <laughs> Prototype World's Fair. I might actually need to keep the, the keep World's Fair right now because it's so much rarer. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a higher market value. Yeah, it does, so... Well, that's fine. I know it's a tough one. We like that's why I said we like to put when we have like designers and publishers, we like to make them choose between all their children. It's kind of fun. I appreciate luckily, it being a good sport. <laughs> yeah, luckily I don't have to do that. I can keep, I can keep them all. So I could play. I have copies of all of them right now. I have more copies of Relic Expedition in my house than the others. <laughs> I admit. <laughs> all right, so I'm gonna just wrap it up by giving you if there's anything you want to plug obviously world's fair is currently running on kickstarter through october 28th i believe october it is. 28th yeah, yeah 3 p.m central time is the end um for that you can see the campaign at worldsfairgame.com that'll redirect you to the campaign today was day one we had a pretty good first day we let's check it while we're here so people can can know the latest we reached our funding goal in under 10 hours so i was really pleased That's with awesome. that yeah we're at 11,500 right now uh, out of our ten thousand dollar goal so uh it's been great you can go there you can back the campaign um you know and back back early and get we're trying to make this a good memorable campaign experience so we'll be sharing a lot of the tidbits of the fair and giving people an opportunity to vote on different exhibits so it's the kind of campaign that it's not just about pre-ordering a game. It's about really having an experience. And hopefully the experience is a bit like going to the fair. just want people, when they open up the box and they start playing, to just sort of have on a small scale that same sense of wonder and grandeur and, and fun that, that you would have really had if you'd gone to the fair. So, yeah, worldsfairgame.com, back now through, the, through October 28th. Awesome. Yep, and I will vouch 
as well. We have our preview up on nonsensicalgamers.com. Uh, we all like it. Spoiler alert. There's probably going to be about four copies of it within our game group, um, <laughs> but that's okay because it's it's that good of a game. So highly Great. recommend you go check it out, worldsfairgame.com, and back it. It's only, what, $29? It's yeah, $29 with free shipping in the U.S. and That's a no-brainer. Yeah, hopefully affordable shipping elsewhere. Um, international shipping is just so expensive. I mean, in one sense, it is a miracle that I can send a package from here to anywhere on the planet for less than a million dollars. But it still is way more expensive than I would like for uh, for backers. So um, we tried to keep that down as low as we could. Uh, yeah, $29 free shipping in the U.S. I, I hope it's a no-brainer. Um, I've had a lot of fun with the game, and I think a lot of people will really enjoy it. Thanks great. for joining Thanks. us, Randy. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. It's great, and we'll have to have me on again so I can get my third supporter ahead of Matt Riddle. I think. And or maybe I'll surprise a- you both and have you on the same episode and keep this tie going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be great. That, that would be hilarious. Excellent. I, am, I, I will definitely participate in that. <laughs> well, looking forward to uh, this time next year when you probably have another sweet game. So we'll, have, uh, we'll definitely talk to you soon, Randy. Thanks so much. <laughs> That sounds great. Thanks a lot, Dan. All right, everyone. So that is a wrap for episode 30 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. Thank you all for joining us again. If you want to reach out to us, you can always find us on Facebook by searching for the League of Nonsensical Gamers. You can always find us at the BGG Guild, number 2077. Start up the conversation or join the ones that are already there. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Google+. We're all over the place. If you really enjoy the show and you want to provide us some feedback, we would love some iTunes reviews, some hearts on board game links, or any other way on Stitcher maybe um, that you can let us know what you think about the show, what we can change, what we're doing well, what we can do differently. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. And... Of course, if you ever want to chat with us directly, the best way to do that is on Twitter. So, Dan, if anyone wants to find you, how do they do that? Uh, at League Nonsense. I run the League's account. And at Scandalous underscore Ned. I am at Cinnamon Buns, spelled phonetically. And our dear Tiffany B is at Inept Gamer. So be sure to check her out. Tell her that you missed her. And join us next week for our news and Kickstarter show that will also include some Essen preview stuff. Stay tuned for that. As for now, we can say goodbye. Toodles. See you, everyone.